Welcome to Pandemics, a podcast series exploring the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the coming months may hold for Canadians. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. Over the next few weeks, I'll be talking to Scotiabank economists about the federal government's response to the pandemic, the job market, real estate, small business, and much more. We'll delve into the real-life impact on Canadians as they struggle to keep their families healthy, while also dealing with all their financial challenges. Today, I'm talking to Scotiabank's chief economist, Jean-François Perrault, about the big picture, what the pandemic has done to our economy, how the Liberal government has reacted, and what the coming months may hold in store for all of us. JF, thanks for joining us today. That's a great pleasure, Steve. All right, well, let's jump right in on this. There has been a whole glut of economic news over the last couple of weeks that paints at least a partial picture of where we're at and where we might be headed, including a throne speech, new GDP numbers, a report from the parliamentary budget officer, and most recently, a new $10 billion infrastructure program. And at the same time, we've had a new surge in COVID cases, especially in Quebec and Ontario, that's leading to renewed restrictions on some kinds of economic activity. This may or may not be a so-called second wave, but it's certainly showing that we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus. So let's go through some of that, starting with the GDP numbers. Now, just we should point out, these are numbers from July, way back in the sunny days of summer when it felt like things were starting to head in the right direction. Can you walk us through some of those numbers, what they mean, what they mean about what was happening then and what they tell us about what's, what's happening now? So, you know, the, the economic data that are coming in, generally speaking, are clearly reflective of a very, very sharp rebound from, you know, the, the, the crushing blows dealt by pan, the pandemic in the early part of the year. Um, so that's obviously it's good news that we are recouping some of the lost ground. Um, but the fact that the numbers are as fantastically strong as they have been so far in the third quarter, you know, can't be necessarily interpreted as indicating that everything is everything is hunky dory. You know, getting back to normal you know, very very rapidly. That's simply not true. You know, GDP uh, obviously has been going strongly, but if you peel the onion back a little bit and you see that some parts of the economy are still struggling, and that's going to be the case for quite a while. Other parts of the economy obviously done a lot better. Um, so you've heard folks, for instance, talk about kind of a K-shaped recovery. So some parts of the economy, you know, rebounding in, in V fashion, others kind of stagnate a little bit. And that's, you know, that's that's the reality that we're going to be in. Um, so, you know, you can look at the July GDP data as being comforting, and it is. And it looks like August is probably going to be a decent number as well. Um, but as you move forward in the quarter, even before you start talking about the second wave, it was always going to be the case that GDP and economic indicators would start to, uh, you know, come back down to more normal levels following an extremely rapid, um, you know, post-COVID recovery in, say, May, June, July, and to some extent August. So can I just stop you there and just to go back at these numbers, because the numbers for July, where it looked like there was a 3% increase in GDP in July, as you say, following a 6% increase in June. So already by July, the sort of the pace of the recovery was starting to slow down. And as I understand it, StatsCan is even talking about they're only projecting a 1% increase in, in August. So, I mean, that is a reflection of, you know, as you say, the that the pace of the recovery is maybe slowing down. But was it already starting to slow down even in July and we weren't aware of it? Well, well I mean, you've got you've to keep in mind that, that usually... 
a monthly GDP number is something like 0.1 or 0.2, right? So 6% obviously is incredibly strong, uh, as were declines of 8 or 9 or 10% before that. 3% is still extremely strong by historical standards. 1% is still extremely strong by historical standards. Um, so, you know, like th that matters to some extent, but clearly what we've been expecting and what, what should happen is um, the, you know, that, that the strength of the rebound fades as you get farther and farther away from, from the point of trauma. Uh, and again, it doesn't mean that things are, things, are, things are back to normal, right? You think of, um, you know, think of the restaurant industry, think of the accommodation industry, think of tourism, think of cinemas. You know, those, those industries are operating at, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% capacity. You know, they're doing much better than they did in March and April when nobody was going but they're still they're still suffering mightily, and that's you know that's going to be the case. That was going to be the case probably pre second wave in any event, as folks just kind of are a little bit fearful of reengaging. Obviously, the second wave, if you want to call it that, is is um, you know going to impact those industries and others uh, in addition to what we've already seen. And would would the projection, even the one percent projection, I mean, I mean, they're talking about August, so that's behind us, and a second wave wouldn't have started. Would economists like yourself and the people at StatCan and elsewhere, uh, you, you would be constantly changing your forecasts based on even on events as are as they are happening now, with with a, with a, with a second wave taking place. And how is if it is a second wave? We keep saying it may or may not be. It might just be the tail end of the first, but. Uh, how do you, how are you looking at it now? How is it changing your projections as, you know, in Quebec, they're talking about closing all kinds of, uh, businesses again, Ontario might be heading in the same direction. How are you seeing that now? Yeah. So, so, you know, to, to get a, to get a handle on that, you, you know, we need to go back a few months. So when, you know, we were putting together forecasts in March or April or May for the year, um, it was pretty the general anticipation was there would be resurgence of the virus in the second part of the year, right? Some, you know, whatever, a second wave or some pickup in, in, in virus activity. Um, so the fact that we're seeing that now isn't a huge surprise. Um, now, there's, there's a difference between anticipating something's going to happen and, and that thing happening and, and incorporating that in the forecast. Uh, but clearly, the fact that we are, you know, case counts are increasing pretty rapidly in some provinces, hospitalization rates are increasing pretty rapidly. It's also the case that this is happening globally. Um, you know, that clearly puts downside risks on the forecast. It clearly means that, you know, the, the rebound from the very bad lows that we saw is probably going to take a little bit longer uh, to, to kind of resolve itself. And, 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 you know, that's, that's just the reality of kind of the virus. So even if governments don't shut things back down, um, you know, you can expect folks to, and we're seeing that, you know, some folks are more uncertain. There'll be a little bit of a delay in, in wanting to re-engage. Uh, so to some extent, we're, 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 we're kind of hostage to that. I, I would say the good thing, though, is, well, to the extent that there's a good thing with respect to the virus, um, is that we've clearly learned from the first phase. We've clearly learned from, you know, how to manage uh, business, how to manage, uh, you know, personal safety. Um, uh, you know, what do we, you know, we wash our hands, everybody's got masks now. Uh, so the, 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 um, the, 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 the kind of 
decisions that were required by policymakers to force people to slow the spread of the virus aren't nearly as I think challenging as they as they have been. So the as we think about you know what might happen to slow uh, things down in 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 the second phase. Um, you know, we don't anticipate a return to full full lockdowns as we have. We don't anticipate, you know, extreme social distancing measures, or they're less likely to be extreme social distancing measures. And that means that, you know, the economic impact of the second wave is likely to be um, much more muted than, than in the first case. And of course, adding on to all of that um, is the fact that we now have very well-established government support programs. You know, those were being ramped up in the beginning. It took a little while to take to take effect. Those are fully in place now. And that, again, is going to help us um, manage, if you will, the economic consequences of a pickup in, 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 in virus activity relative to our ability to do so six months ago. Right. That's, well, that's a great segue into the, my next question that I had for you, which was exactly about that, about the federal government's uh, response and the measures that they've taken in response to the to the pandemic, to put it uh, to put it bluntly and maybe not entirely fairly, the response essentially was, let's spread money across the country to whoever needs it, and maybe it's indefinite. And I, I guess maybe the first question is, did that work? Was was it the was it the right thing to do? Has it had the the positive impacts that the the massive amounts of government spending that have taken place? Uh, were intended to have. It, it seems so. Uh, in fact, you can argue that maybe the supports were, were overly generous. Uh, if you look, for instance, at the behavior of household income, which obviously is 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 a key economic uh, force, um, we went in February from the lowest rate of unemployment in Canada in forty five years to March with the highest rate of unemployment in history. So a huge swing in unemployment rates. And of course, when folks are unemployed, usually there's a pretty significant decline in income. And as that income declines, and obviously consumption slows, housing markets slow, a range of things happen associated with that. What we saw, for however, in the second quarter, so the, the um, uh, well, second quarter, we saw a, a very significant increase in household income. So instead of a sharp decline, very significant increase because the government support programs for households were very, very generous by historical standards. So as a result of that, and also the fact that you know banks deferred mortgages and a range of other financial support measures, we saw uh, through June and, 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 and July um, some pretty remarkable developments. First, a huge increase in household savings, right? Extremely large, like, a, like by far the largest highest household saving rates in history. At the same time, you saw retail sales going back to where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, you saw a dramatic rebound on the housing market. You saw auto sales pick up dramatically. Um, and that was all, or most of that, was associated with the uh, income supports that the government provided to households. So it's, it's very clear that there's been a very positive impact as a result of that. And when we think about, for instance, growth dynamics, so growth in, or sorry, growth, the fall in economic activity in the second quarter is about 40%. You know, we're tracking uh, an increase in economic activity in the third quarter of like 45, 46% now. So, you know, that, that a critical part of that was simply resulting from the fact that governments did provide a huge amount of stimulus on the household side. Yeah, some of those areas are are fascinating. The the growth in in housing and auto sales and all that in the minute in the midst of a 
a recession, even I saw someone in an article today call it a depression, um, is remarkable. We'll get into those things in some in some of our future episodes of uh, of the podcast. Um, in the meantime, I mean, the side, not the side effect, but the direct result of uh, those government programs, which seem to have been effective in in keeping the economy afloat and keeping households afloat, is, of course, uh, huge federal deficits and debt like we haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, the parliament, parliamentary budget officer's latest report uh, forecast a federal deficit this year of 328 billion dollars. Uh, it's a number that's difficult for many of us to even understand what it means. So could you maybe put that into some context for it, for us? What does it mean sort of compared to historical levels, compared to pre-COVID levels, compared to some some other, uh, some other countries and so on? And then what does it mean for down the road when the government's carrying that kind of debt? So, so a couple of things on that, uh, just to give you a perspective on how big this deficit was and how quickly it increased. You know, if you go back to a couple of years ago, um, and certainly the previous government, we were on track to balance the budget. You know, there's a question of, you know, when that might happen. Um, but basically, with the Liberal government and, and well, you know, farther away than we should be, but we, we, we could, it was an achievable objective. And uh, obviously, the Harper government basically brought us to brought us brought us to to balance. Um, we're as you said, you know, three hundred and thirty, whatever, maybe four hundred. We'll see when the final numbers come out. Um, but another way to think about that is to go back to previous episodes of stimulus that were required. So if we go back to the last the last recession, so the Great Financial Crisis, which was a pretty darn big shock at that time, you know, ex eclipsed by what we're seeing now, but a big shock back then. You know, the fiscal stimulus that came out of that, so the deficit that came out of that was something like $50 billion, you know, give or take. We're, we're six or seven or eight times that now. So, like, absolutely uh, unbelievable increases in, in, in fiscal support and, and, and obviously with an impact on fiscal on the fiscal position of the government. And this is true in Canada as it is in, in other countries as well. So when you, when you then think about, okay, well, how are we going to pay for this? What does it mean? you know, for my taxes in two, three, four, five, six years. Well, obviously, to get a sense of that, you firstly have to get a sense of, you know, how how is the economy going to do over the next year or two? So are we going to be in a position where we still need to run very large deficits to support our population, given given the prevalence of COVID? And that seems to be the case right now. You know, the virus is coming back. The government's made it clear that they're not going to pull back on the support measures for firms and households. So you're looking at another big deficit next year. So that's not going to come off automatically. It's going to come off at some point when the economy is better and the government can pull those things back. Um, but, you know, looking at our forecast, we, the Canada started, you know, went into the crisis with a net debt to GDP ratio of about 30%. So the lowest in the G7. You know, it might come out of this with, or we might come out of this with something like 60% debt to GDP ratio. So doubling, which is, which is unbelievable. Um, but it's still at 60% debt to GDP, it's still by G7 standards, a pretty darn low level of indebtedness. And that suggests, obviously not that we can be, you know, loosey goosey with, with the fiscal position. Um, but that, you know, 60% seems like it's a sustainable amount that you can then, you know, from that 60 or 65, wherever you kind of peter out, bring that debt to GDP ratio down gradually beyond that. 
without probably needing to, to raise taxes uh, because these big programs are, are, are going to roll and hopefully will roll off. Um, so that's so that's a pretty important thing that, you know, as, as we think about the, the deficit, you know, the worry is, okay, at some point in time, we're going to have to raise corporate taxes. We're going to have to raise taxes on individuals to bring this thing down. That's not necessarily the case given, given the starting point that we're at and where we're likely to end. The other thing, obviously, is, you know, at some point, our market's going to get tired of this. Our market's going to say, you know what? We don't like the path you're going on. We're going to charge you more. It's going to cost you more uh, to borrow from us. And again, here, you know, relativity matters. So the fact that we're still among the, we'd still be among the lowest in the G7, probably the lowest in the G7, um, you know, speaks well in our favor. The reality is right now, there is such a large amount of liquidity in the markets that it's very simple, it's very easy for firms and governments to borrow. And that doesn't seem like it's likely to change in part because central banks have been extremely extremely aggressive in providing liquidity to global financial markets. That, that includes the direct buying of government debt. So the environment in which all this is happening is very different than, than previous environments where government debt was a problem. You've just got much more demand, much more support for government debt markets than we've seen in, well, in, in Canada that we've ever seen. Um, you know, other countries are a little bit different, but it's so, so it's not, it's easy to scare ourselves uh, with, with the path that we're on but it's probably not as dramatic as what we would have thought would have been the case um, if we were looking at a, you know, a $300 billion deficit five or 10 years ago. Right. And historically low interest rates that are likely to continue for, for years and years and years uh, makes that all possible. I mean, I don't know, if it, is there anything that could cause an interest rate shock that where suddenly you would see them, see them spike? Yeah, so, so obviously, as, as you've indicated, central banks, again, the Bank of Canada and other central banks have done this. The Bank of Canada very explicitly has basically said, we're not going to move interest rates until we think and we, we, are, con we are convinced that inflation is sustainably above 2% in Canada. And that's, you know, that's three or four years away. Um, so, you know, short-term borrowing costs aren't going to increase uh, if inflation remains below 2 So, the, so the, the, key, the key determinant here is really inflation dynamics. You know, if inflation comes back more rapidly than, than central banks think, then obviously they would have to do something about that, and that means higher interest rates. Um, and, and, you know, despite the fact that we have this very large shock to growth, which in principle means lower inflationary pressures, which is why central banks have been cutting rates, I mean, this is a bit of a bizarre shock in that there's a very big supply aspect to it, right? You're, 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 you know, so think of a restaurant that's operating now at whatever, 50% capacity. Um, so either that restaurant needs to raise prices to maintain its profits or, you know, maybe at the end of the day it, it closes. So you reduce capacity. Um, so there's a potential for what we're seeing to actually lead to higher price pressures than we would assume given, given the economic outlook. And that's what some of the folks are worried about. So they look at, you know, maybe there's some, maybe there's some incipient inflationary pressure there that is, um, uh, you know, more robust, if you will, than what you would normally assume given, given the decline in economic activity. And of course, on top of that, you know, there's this worry um, that as government debts pile up and the central bank is buying those, it increases the money supply, that you have this kind of, this, this old school uh, pushed inflation, which is that money creates inflation uh, in a way that we've not seen, you know, in 20, 30, 50 years, depending on the country you're looking at. 
So that's all in the background, and those are the things that could lead to higher interest rates and therefore more expensive government debt. But that's you know that, that I think is the kind of more of a tail scenario than something that's really right. that's really likely. Right. Doesn't seem like a huge threat at this point. Uh, so I, I just have one more question for you in the time we have left. And you were talking about you know deficits over the next couple of years as governments continue to be required to support to provide additional supports related to COVID. But then in the throne speech a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, the government also, perhaps in sort of a vague way, there wasn't a lot of detail in there. And, you know, to be honest, they've also promised these things before. So whether it becomes reality or not is a question. But they, they talked about new social programs or spending programs that arguably not directly related to, to COVID, talking about expanding uh, support for childcare with a view to helping women get into and stay into the workforce. And I know the bank has, uh, has made some suggestions around that a particular area, but also about pharmacare and green initiatives and so on. So it sounds like this government, as you might expect, is fairly ambitious in what it would like to do. How? What's your view of some of those bigger picture, uh, that wish list that the government had in the throne speech, the likelihood that they that they might materialize and whether or not it's a good thing? Well, clearly it's an environment where governments that are more inclined to spend are going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be easier for them to do that, given the fact that, you know, we are talking about three, four hundred billion dollar deficits, right? That environment is very different than, again, the pre-COVID environment where the deficit is going to be 20 and you're trying to bring it down to zero. Um, so when you've got the ability to spend 50, 100 billion dollars on stuff and have, you know, and, and markets not really worry about that, it really kind of opens up the the possibility of uh, for governments to do, to do things some of them smart some of them less smart what's an extra 10 or 20 billion in this context exactly right yeah. like peanuts uh and even now you get you know the deficit forecast for this year is like whatever folks will say 320 350 like whatever you know in that range well like there's a huge difference compared to what we used to in any event um the the you know what we're looking for is hopefully for the government to do really smart investments things that that kind of pay off economically that have the potential to raise long-term prosperity that have the potential to pay for themselves in some way and then childcare is one of those things so if you if you do it the right way it's it's you know the, the increased economic activity that flows from that has the potential to pay its pay its pay for itself which is what we've seen in quebec um, but some of the other stuff is 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 a little bit um, you know it's not quite as obvious in terms of economic impact. Um, so we'll we'll see. I mean, clearly the government is prioritizing anything that's COVID related for now, and it needs to do that. Um, and the speed at which we kind of uh, walk the virus back, I think, will will determine what it is that's feasible on their end. Um, but you know, I would think that these large scale social programs that they're thinking about things like pharmacare, even even childcare, um, you know, which requires pretty significant consultations with the province, are things that are, I think, at this point, some distance off. So, you know, we think of the we think of the Stone Throne speech as, as basically wish list more than anything. Uh, we'll have some details in the, in the upcoming budget whenever that's done. Um, but it's you know the job the government's I, I think is still uh, their job number one is still is still managing the virus and. I think we hope we'll prioritize measures that 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 do that over things that maybe um, have a longer term fiscal implication or uh, it might not pay off as quickly as, as some other things. Right. 
Unfortunately, I'm going to have to stop you there, JF. We are going to have you back on a future episode because we haven't even touched on what everybody is talking about now, which is the U.S. election. So we will get you back to talk about that uh, a little bit later on. But thanks a lot. This has been really interesting. Really appreciate you taking part. Well, thanks very much. And uh, next week, we'll be talking to Rebecca Young, Director of Fiscal and Provincial Economics at Scotiabank, uh, about the job market specifically. There'll be some new job numbers coming out. We'll talk to Rebecca about who's being hit hardest, what the impact of those job losses is, and what the outlook over the course of the winter months might be. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Pandemics. <laughs>